I think if we want to have an honest conversation about justice, we've got to hear from those on the margins and those who have suffered injustice. Who is God in that space? That's who I want to hear from and learn from. Hello and welcome to the Together podcast, a conversation about faith, justice and how to change the world. My name's Dan and we've got a special episode for you today. It's coming from one of our recent Together weekends where we got a number of people passionate about changing the world, about tackling injustice and we explored how we can each play a bigger part in making a difference. And so we wanted to bring you a conversation we had there. It's called Theology Wreck My Life. And my friend Chris spoke to Joe Herbert. Joe Herbert works here at Tear Fund and she specifically looks around the theology of uh, justice and the theology of poverty and how we can respond out of exploring what God is calling us to in making the world a fairer place. So Chris and Joe talked about the tension that exists between knowing a better world is possible but being faced with the fact that people around you don't seem to care or may seem unwilling to change it. At times, that's obviously frustrating to know that God is calling us and is is working and playing a part in changing the world, but seeing so much objection around you can be disheartening. Joe's someone who, like many of us, has felt that tension in her own life, but instead of shying away from it, she dove deeper into what God was calling her to do, and it radically changed how she works through the tension in her everyday life. So I'm going to hand over to Chris. He's going to introduce you to Joe, and I hope you enjoy this conversation. Let me welcome up Joe to the stage. Everyone make some noise for Joe. Hello, hello. Hello, how are you doing? I'm all right, thanks. Good, good, good. So can you tell us a bit about yourself? What do you do? In fact, actually, why not start with how did you become a Christian? Great question. Well, so I'm Joe. I live down in central London, so quite an easy journey here. I grew up in Somerset, though. Uh, I know I lost the accent. You can't really tell. But uh, I, I grew up um, where my parents kind of had a faith, and I grew up going to a high Anglican church. So um, very traditional uh, not necessarily aimed towards children and young people. And so uh, my teenage years particularly weren't the easiest um, and was a bit off the rails at points. But when I was 17, I met some Christians who went to a church in the next town. And uh, that's really where I became a Christian. Um, I was in a talk, I'd gone along with some people from the church. I really wasn't that interested in being in the talk, if I'm honest. Um, and at, at the end, uh, this um, the, someone came up and she read uh, from John the story of the woman um, caught in adultery uh, that was brought before Jesus. And as this story was being read, um, and you may well remember it. So the woman's caught in adultery. She's brought um, by lots of men before Jesus. And they're saying, well, the law says that you, we must stone her. Um, and Jesus says, uh, he who is out sin casts the first stone. And all these men left. And this woman is just left, just her and Jesus. And I don't know all of what she was feeling at that time, but Jesus 
looks at her and says, so do they not condemn you? And she says, no. And he says, then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. And as this story was being read, it felt like it was just me and Jesus in that moment. And the amazing, liberating thing where Jesus says, go leave your life of sin, it felt like Jesus was saying, you are free to go and live your, leave your life of sin and live for a different way. Um, and it was like a profound moment where everything changed for me. And, um, and, and I sort of, you know, got some prayer and had to sort of deal with a few different things. But at that point, it was life-changing. And I was in, like hook, line, and sinker. This is my life now. I've done life without Jesus. It didn't work out very well. And so I was just fully in, feeling freer than I had ever felt. So, yeah, that's how I became a Christian. So that was 19 years ago. Awesome. That's a, that's I know, a, right? That's I don't amazing. look old enough is what you're all thinking. <laughs> Me yeah. and Joe go a little, a, little, a little way back We well. do. About five, way back. five or six years. Yeah. yeah we, we owe Jesus out here. Easily. <laughs> um, so you love Jesus. I do. Good. That was, I still love that Jesus. That was a test. I'm glad you yeah. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> um, you still love Jesus. What does that mean for your life today? What are you? What do you do? Um, so loving Jesus uh, means um, I still feel like I live in that freedom, um, and yet Jesus is also deeply inconvenienced to my life. I'm not going to lie. Um, so, you know, if you're going to be, like, all in, that is actually quite hard work. Um, and yet it is so freeing and so liberating, and it's where you become who you fully could ever be. Um, but that is not an easy path. So uh, one of that, So I work for Tear Fund. Um, I am, have worked for Tear Fund for the last 13 and a half years, uh, which was never the plan. I came to Tear Fund hopefully for six months and I thought I'd get this whole thing about the poor out of my system and get on with the rest of my life. Um, and it turns out it's the rest of my life. Uh, and that's what I mean. I got hijacked. I realized that uh, to pursue God is to pursue justice. And if I'm going to be in fully hook, line, and sinker, uh, then to pursue God was to pursue justice. And this is where I felt that God had called me to live that out and work that out. Awesome. So, so I guess like on a day-to-day -day sort of basis, what do you love about what you do now? So uh, I am obviously biased. I think Tiffund is an incredible place to work. I worked for about 10 years in the youth and emerging generation team. <laughs> Uh, and that is where I learned the most, was discipled the most, challenged the most um, in this message that we are communicating to a younger generation about what it means to truly live as a disciple of Jesus. Um, and I guess I'd done, um, I'd done that for a long time and thought more and more, what does the Bible say? What are we... Where, uh, what is our theology around this? What is our thinking about God and about justice that stems from the Bible? Um, and so I may be slightly jumping ahead. So I eventually went off and did a master's in theology. Um, and I now work in a theology and networks team. And so I cover the US and Europe. 
Uh, and really, it's about communicating, helping people engage better with a solid uh, biblical basis for the theology of justice. So why we do what we do and how we do what we do is as important as what we do. Um, and so I love that basically I get to think and talk about theology all day, every day. Um, I mean, there are definitely some dull bits, um, which is true of every job. But um, it's incredible. It's also infuriating sometimes. And so I'm meeting with really different people, um, both across Europe and across the US and other parts of the world. And you meet those that you connect with and you learn from and you're inspired by. And you meet others where, you know, for them, they haven't been opened up to this way of thinking. And you kind of, um, you know, end up in those tricky conversations as well. But the challenge is, how am I communicating well? How am I not judging and not being frustrated with people, but taking people on a journey? So it's an amazing job, um, a challenging job and demanding at the same time. Yeah. But so, it challenges me to live it out more. Yeah, I, I think uh, you mean, you've mentioned justice a number of times, which I mean it's your job, so that's good. <laughs> um, Thanks, tick. I, <laughs> tick, tick. Uh, for you... Just rewinding a little bit, what was it about justice? I mean, you spoke about that story with the with the woman who was about to be stoned and Jesus stepping in and sort of, you know, bringing justice into yeah. that situation. For your own life, whether it was maybe what you, you observed around the world or locally or personally, what was it about justice that you felt like you were really called to, to move towards? There, did you have a moment where you kind of thought, I've had enough of this. Yeah, so uh, for those who may have heard me speak before, um, the, I tell this story a lot. So I, like I said, I became a Christian. So I'm in, like hook, line, and sinker. You know, I just fell in love with the Bible and I read about David and David was a man after God's own heart. And that's, I was like, that's who I want to be. Someone after God's own heart. Um, and long story short, I found myself in Lebanon, uh, working in an orphanage. And so I was definitely a youth worker through and through, not a children's worker. So I'm in an orphanage with an awful lot of children, um, slightly feeling out of place and confused as why God had uh, put me there. So when I was there, they gave me a choice. You can either spend time in a school with the kids um, or there's an admin you can do. Um, I don't love admin, but I was like, children, admin, okay, let's go admin. Um, so kids, it's not that I don't like kids. It's that en masse, they terrify me. They're like herding cats. For the kids workers out there, I have so much respect. I don't know how you do it. Um, and so one of the things they asked me to do was they had been given some software where they could hold all the records of the kids. They had paper records. And so they said, basically, can you transfer all the paper records onto the software? So just writing out every record. So names, date of birth, um, you know, all of that sort of stuff. And one of the things in the record was the story of how the child had come to be there. So I wrote out story after story of poverty, deprivation, abuse. Uh, some of them were refugees. Two of those boys had witnessed their father kill their mother, one of which had been locked in a room with his dead mum's corpse for two days before he'd been found. And story after story, day after day. 
And I remember going back to my room one evening and I was like, God, this just feels so unfair. Like these kids, who they will grow up to be through the lottery of postcode, really, they have such less opportunity. These kind of starts of life give you so much less opportunity. And, uh, and I just began, I was angry and frustrated at God. And I began to cry and I was like, God, this is heartbreaking. And God said to me in that moment, if you think that your heart breaks, my heart breaks more. These are my children who I made, and I've seen every day of their lives. If you think that your heart breaks, mine breaks more. And it was a moment for me that stopped me in my tracks. And I said, I want to be someone who pursues God's heart. And every day, this part of God's heart, his heart, breaks around the world And I realized if I want to faithfully pursue God's heart, I have to pursue that part of his heart. And that was a change moment for me where I realized to pursue God is to pursue all of who he is. Uh, And that is a huge part of who he is. That's amazing because I feel like within what you just said, you very easily could have just walked away. You very easily could have just said, you know what, God... It would have been simpler. It would have been a lot simpler. <laughs> I mean, it's difficult to come to that story, those stories. I mean, I've not even got the detail. And I'm sitting here like, that sounds horrific. And in that moment, the fact that you even still went to God. Yeah. What, what, where did that come from? Was that just something inside you? I guess partly I'd had this profound encounter with Jesus when I became a Christian. Um, And I think for me, it was like if God is who he says he is, um, and if I have committed myself, if I said this is how I'm going to live now, then that is not always easy. And so, yeah, it would have been easier to walk away. It would have been easier to leave Lebanon and great thanks for the couple of months there great experience ate some brilliant food um you know learned a lot about the complex politics of the middle east um and get on with my life like and chalk it down to experience um and carry on eating lebanese food and that be it but that's not who we are called to be and so I think my encounter with Jesus is really what pursue, continued um, to compel me to pursue Jesus in all of his fullness. Because otherwise it's, it's a bit fake and half-hearted and it doesn't satisfy. Yeah. Do you feel, do you, would you say that when you think about the church generally, would you have that criticism towards the church? Do you think there is this kind of, Half-hearted fakeness. Um, I prefer to use the word critique. <laughs> um, my oh challenge, uh, my challenge to the church, particularly in the West, is will we embrace the fullness of the gospel? Um, and I think this, the gospel that we are often given is one of individual salvation. That that encounter, me and Jesus, was is really what it's all about, me and Jesus, and that's it. And if you want to add in other things, then you can, but it's not compulsory. But when I go back to the Bible, that isn't the story that I read. 
it is 100% compulsory to engage with the world around you. It cannot remain just me and him. And so my challenge to the church, particularly the Western church, and you don't find this so much in the church, particularly in the majority world, their story does involve others um, and God's redemption for all things. But we have lost some of that story here, particularly in the Western world. And it comes from this individual narrative that goes throughout culture um, and the individualistic consumer narrative that makes you the God of your own life. Um, that, you know, you are really building your own empire, your own, uh, you know, security and the comforts for your life. And when you've done that, then think about someone else. Then maybe you can engage with others as well. And that is a narrative that goes throughout society and it is interwoven into the church and we are unaware. Um, and I, this is what I did really in my dissertation for my master's of really looking at how those narratives have really been embedded within the church. And we have, you know, we're going to talk about this a bit more later, go back to what the biblical story is, because that is the story that we're called to live in, not the story that culture gives us. And we appropriate the gospel into our culture, into our narrative, which isn't the true narrative of the gospel. And so we're living this half-hearted slightly fake not full gospel and so and then we find it doesn't satisfy and we find that particularly you know the millennial generation but not just are leaving the church because it does not satisfy because it isn't a true gospel I just wanted to interrupt the conversation briefly to say that if you've enjoyed listening to Joe and what she shared, then there's another Together Weekend event happening up in Edinburgh. It's a day event, Saturday the 16th of March. If you live within a drivable distance, then do get along to that. It's going to be a great day looking at how we can use our everyday lives to make a difference for people living in poverty. So visit weare.tearfund.org forward slash gatherings to find out more. It's, it's interesting because I think, particularly with, with, I mean, within theology, I've kind of always heard that, like, the word is the word. And don't, you can't ignore that, you can't, whatever. Which I believe, I believe the Bible, everyone, don't worry. Amen. <laughs> um, but I think what you were saying kind of brings up this fact that actually, what are we bringing, what are we bringing to the Bible when we're reading it? What is in front of our eyes and what are we reading into it? For you studying theology, what was that process like? Did you kind of feel, I get in the idea that you kind of had this sort of breaking down and stripping away of the general direction that I guess we just talked about, this kind of half-hearted, apathetic sort of attitude. So how was that for you studying theology? What was that even, what were you even studying? What does that look like? Okay, so um, I think it's easy to think about theology as this kind of academic subject uh, with lots of big words. It does have lots of big words um, that I can't really spell because I'm dyslexic. Uh, but, and lots of really thick books, which is true. Um, although 
theology was only ever supposed to be applied. Um, and so, yes, we think about theology, but it should never be divorced from practice and how we live that out. And I think for me, uh, one of the things that inspires me about Jesus, and I read the stories of Jesus and his encounters with people, he could ask a question. So people would come to him with a question, and he'd ask a question back. Yeah, or he'd have like a one-liner that would just silence the room. Like, it's incredible. And I think the thing with it is Jesus understood culture better than it understood itself. And so he was able to, with a question or a statement, cut through everything that was being said to him and expose what was really going on. Now, his ability to do that was in part because he understood scripture. He understood the story of the Bible, and he understood culture. And that, that for me, is what inspires me, and I could only ever hope to aspire to. And so my study of theology was saying, okay, how do I faithfully learn better the story? How do I understand what God was really trying to teach us and show us through the Bible? And how do I understand the culture that I live in? We have to understand our own cultural lens and understand where, you know, we, we carry blind spots because of that. And understand the cultural lens that the Bible was written through helps you understand what was really going on and what God was really trying to say. Um, and, you know, uh, some of you might have heard me talk on it before, but my, the essay that I love doing the most was on Old Testament priesthood. Uh, which Incredible. is uh, really the study of the book of Leviticus. Uh, which I know is all of your bedtime reading. Um, everyone loves that book. And that book is, if you read it with no cultural understanding, a little bit strange. Um, there is like blood and sacrifices and, you know, birds get pulled apart and they walk through the middle. I mean, what? Like, Just a normal, normal day, right? <laughs> yeah, sure. Like really culturally relevant. Um, but when you understand what is going on culturally, uh, there is so much that it brought to life for me about who God made his people to be. The blueprint of what it meant to be the people of God was social justice, social cohesion, this togetherness of community and creation care. Um, and it brought to life so much of who God has called us to be. It's brilliant. But at the same time, still the, the dots. How does that connect practically? Because for me... I don't want to sound dismissive, but when I think about theology, I kind of think of old white men talking about the Bible and not really doing much else, whereas what you're saying is very practical. And when we're thinking about justice, when we're thinking about how to connect that to the whole world, how do you kind of balance the fact that you're talking about changing the world, but really it's only mostly coming from a Western voice? Yeah. Um, so that kind of picture that you have of old white men <laughs> and theology, um, is probably one I have too, and certainly is one that is a reality in the Western theological space. Um, now we're not dissing white men. Uh, we love, love white men <laughs> for love sure. Em. Um, and, but they are, I think, an overrepresented voice, um, in a theological space. And I think when you think about the story of God, you think about theology, the Bible, when you're thinking about justice, um, these are massive topics. 
They're big subjects, and it needs a lot of voices and different perspectives. And so for me, you know, one of the things that we work hard at is at Tear Fund is where are we hearing the theological voice from? Uh, what are different people's perspective on who God is? And so drawing on the theological voices from the majority world. So like I said, in the Western world, we have this individualistic story, and it is woven into our theological perspectives as well. When you go and talk to people in Latin America, they don't come and talk about an individualistic gospel. Um, when I go to the you know depths of India, um, and sit in front of theologians there. There's no individualistic gospel. Um, they, they're talking about the community. They're talking about what God wants to do in a transformation of all things. And they teach me. They teach me about my relationship with wider creation. They teach me about my relationship being caught up with my neighbor, uh, my neighbor right next to me, my global neighbor. Um, and so I think there is uh, a sort of pulling back of theology from one particular vantage point. And I'm not saying that that's not valid because there are some phenomenal thinkers that have, you know, and people that I will talk about later. But it is an overrepresented voice. And I think if we want to have an honest conversation about justice, we've got to hear from those on the margins and those who have suffered injustice. Who is God in that space? That's who I want to hear from and learn from. Um, is how do they, uh, you know, wrestle with Scripture? And you know, you know, when they're asking the questions, where is God for them when they've experienced oppression and experienced oppression for generations, yeah. not just in their context now? Yeah, awesome. So when you're thinking about actually having this, making sure there is this representation for everyone. And within your role at Tearfund, you're doing something like the Justice Conference, which is a huge undertaking of getting something quite similar to this in a Together Weekend, in a sense, getting people together to talk about justice, about different issues. You're booking speakers, you're booking people to come. Does that have an impact? You know, what we, what we were just talking about. Yeah, absolutely. So um, we did the Justice Conference back in November. Um, is anyone there? Oh, a few of you. Oh, great. One of the things that we did, we didn't want to just put on another conference, um, the Justice Conference. We wanted to produce a just conference. Um, and if we were going to be bold enough to talk about integral missions, a holistic mission, the theology of justice, what we said all along is we want to, as much as possible, embody our theology and live it out in all of what we do. And so the, in order to do that, first off, you need to know your theology. That's kind of key. Uh, and not in a kind of shallow, vague way, but what does this really mean? Um, and we've got to be prepared to make uh, difficult decisions. Justice doesn't happen in conversations. It happens in decisions. And there were decisions that we made for that conference that you would have seen on the stage and there are decisions we made that you'll never know about. But there is about faithfully before God, how are we as best as we could living this out? And one of the things that we said really early on is uh, we will balance the platform, male, female, white, non-white. Because 
we want the different voices coming together because it cannot be heard again from this overrepresented voice, which we especially hear in the Western world, which is majority white um, and is still majority male. Uh, and it, we're better than many other parts of the world on that, but we're still not where we could be or should be. Um, and so bringing to life different perspectives. Um, you know, we made decisions about not flying people in, particularly from Europe. So if you could get a train, um, you know, people on stage, you know, you would never know that if you were coming to the conference. But we wanted to make sure we were living this out um, in, in all the areas. You know, the signs that we made, we made sure that we could reuse them rather than throw them out straight after. Um, did, you, did you have anyone just say no? Like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do that. Uh, we didn't you have, have to, you don't have to spill names or anything. Yeah. <laughs> um, we didn't have anyone say no. I think we had some hesitations, um, on a few different things. Um, and so certainly when we were saying, actually we had our quota of white men. Um, and then, so we said, well, actually you can only come and speak if you bring a non-white woman. Um, and there were certainly some hesitations, but actually I think, people ultimately appreciated being challenged and they appreciated someone who actually uh, saw through what they said. And I think, again, for me, when I look at Jesus, this is what inspires me about him. He saw through what he said. So he believed in love, peace, nonviolence, enough to die for it. Yeah. Not in a theoretical way where he talked about it and, you know, would theoretically lay down his life. He actually did it, and he saw it through. And I think that, for me, is always the challenge. We can talk about this stuff till the cows come home. Yeah. Will we actually live it out? And I think that was part of what people loved but also felt challenged on was, oh, um, you know, will we actually see this through? And one of the other things we did with our partners is we said we're not going to have a kind of gold, silver, bronze sort of way of doing it because then the people who pay the most get the most airtime. And that felt the most unjust thing in the world at a justice conference was to say the people that can't pay, basically you don't get to speak on stage. Um, and so we said to different organizations, if you can afford more, we're going to ask you to give more. Those who can't afford will give less. And so we had some... I think, um, you know, the biggest contributions were up in the thousands, um, and some people paid nothing at all. Um, but that had no impact on their airtime. Yeah. And there was one organization that we said to them, if you don't want to partner that way, we understand, but we're probably not the event for you to partner with. And there was only one organization that sort of walked away from that. Yeah. Um, and, but actually, they sort of came back later and said, oh, actually, maybe we do want in. Oh, yeah, the Bible. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And so it was a different way of modeling it. That's um, so, yeah. So on a big organizational way, if we see how you kind of practically walk out the theology journey that you've been on for yourself personally. Are you living up to the challenge? How has your theology impacted your daily life are you? It's not. Isn't, this is not me being like, give me, give me all the answers. But I, I just want to know genuinely, uh, how does how does your daily life change when you know 
like you said, the fullness of the call to love Jesus, to love the Lord, to love justice. Yeah. Um, so I would definitely say I'm trying. I'd say I'm not 100%, but then I think you'd be concerned if I was saying I was 100%. Um, I think, so the challenge for me when I got to Tear Fund um, was how does this impact my daily life? Um, and I think over the years, I've gradually gone on a journey of realizing, um, part, partly, I mean, I'm probably well known for talking about the environment. That's one of the areas I feel most passionate about and challenged about. Um, and I, but I, if I'm honest, like, I don't, I'm not like a natural nature lover. Um, I mean, I love Blue Planet, but I love watching it on my sofa with a glass of wine <laughs> um, and a duvet if it's the winter. Um, you know, I'm not, I, and I didn't really care less at all. And, and I realized though, when I got to Tear Fund, that climate change seriously undermines the lives of people living in poverty. And by this point, I had this revelation that God cares about people living in poverty, so I should too. And so if caring about people living in poverty actually means caring about the environment. And I was like, oh, no, like, I really don't care. Um, and I'm really not interested. And so for me, it was a journey of saying, OK, my head knows I've got to engage with this. But my heart is not interested. And I felt like my head had to drag my heart out of pure obedience uh, to what I saw in scripture ultimately where God says to worship him is to loose the chains of injustice I can't go to church and sing on a Sunday and not work to live loose the chains of injustice and that means like climate change environmental degradation is like I said ruining the lives of people living in poverty I can't pick and choose what I do and don't engage with and so I reluctantly, and I knew that was probably wrong, but I just didn't care. And I couldn't make myself care. Yeah. And, but I had to, out of pure obedience, engage with it. And so over many years, I would say my heart has changed a lot. Um, I still am not. I spend more time these days with people who really do love the environment. Um, and there's a dear friend of ours that works for us in the U.S., who just is this incredible like bird watcher, um, and he like I mean it sounds a bit sad, but he like it's, it is impressive. <laughs> like people around the world will send him like pictures of birds and be like, "Can you identify that?" <laughs> I mean, like whatever country, and he just knows what it is. He can like we stopped once when we were driving, and he's like, "Can you hear that whistle?" And I'm like, "I can pretty much only hear cars." <laughs> I can't, and he's like, "But this is this kind of bird," and I'm like. Cool. Um, I've never heard of that. I can identify like a pigeon and a robin. Um, oh, and a seagull. Uh, so I feel like a fraud. Yeah. Okay. But I now recognize to uh, faithfully uh, honor God it means to honor creation. And so then I did this priesthood essay in my MA. So here we are deep in Leviticus, Old Testament priesthood. I was not excited about this essay. And this essay wrecked my life. So, like I said, I found deep within it social justice, social cohesion, and creation care is what the blueprint of what it meant to be the people of God. And what I found within there is priests 
part of their role was to keep the temple, the place where the presence of God dwell, clean. Okay? And so I, you know, as a Protestant, was like, Old Testament priests are irrelevant, right? You know, New Testament with a priesthood of all believers. Um, and so my lecturer challenged me, and he was like, well, what does it mean to be a priest? And I was like, oh, so I'm supposed to study Old Testament priesthood to understand how to participate as part of the priesthood now. And he was like, well, I think so. Um, it's very gracious with me. And I learned what it meant was to keep the place where the presence of God dwelt clean. And, you know, scholars all agreed the temple was a microcosm for the whole of creation. So, you know, since Jesus and the new covenant, we understand that God's presence dwells in all of creation. And if I am a part of that priesthood, what does it mean for me to keep the place, the physical place, where the presence of God dwells clean? And I start to look around and think, huh, we're not doing that great a job. <laughs> um, and this is going back uh, maybe five years now. And I started to feel really challenged about that. And what does that mean then of physically keeping the earth clean? Now, it's talked about much more in the last five years, in the last two years more than ever. We have a massive issue with waste in our world. We have waste management issues that people do not really have you know, the answers to yet. And I started to think about how am I contributing personally? Really, again, long story short, I've gone on this journey towards living zero waste. Um, and when I first started talking about this and felt challenged on it, actually, I've, I was like, God, this just seems a bit crazy. This feels too extreme. It like was early on as zero well. Zero right? waste, yeah. It was before it became a bit more mainstream. Yeah. So you look really like, what's she talking about? She's crazy. I know. <laughs> I even came to people at work and I was like, I'm going to do this thing. And people were like, really? You're weird. Like, I mean, I know I'm a little bit out there anyway, but I was like, God, this is just going to, people already think I'm a nutter. Like, this is not going to do me any favors. And God was like, so you're more interested in what people think about you than what I'm asking you to do. And I was like, oh. <laughs> turns out, yes. Okay, fine. We'll do this zero waste thing. And, you know, the thing for it, for me, is it's been one of the most profound spiritual journeys I've ever been on. And I went to it really reluctantly, and it was really hard. But, again, I go back to um, Romans 12, verse 1, and in the message version... Um, it says, here's what I want you to do. God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life. You're eating, sleeping, going to work, walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. And I think for me, and this is what I think about theology, yes, there's a big story of how it transforms everything, but how do I bring my everyday ordinary life before God? How do I live out creation care in my ordinary life? No matter what the world is doing, me making my own toothpaste isn't going to make a blind bit of difference really to the global issue of waste, but it shapes me and my discipleship. How am I bringing my everyday life before God? And that for me is the challenge, um, is how is every part? So zero waste, um, you know, thinking about my carbon footprint. Yeah. I'm getting married in April. Ooh. What is? Uh, yeah, it's very exciting. Round of applause. Um, <laughs> <laughs> thanks. Um, 
and we're really thinking through how do we have our wedding with a low environmental impact yeah. the wedding industry is not set up for low environmental impact um, but we're working you know it's really inconvenient and making my job harder uh, and life harder but this is if life is about faithfully yeah. following Jesus what else do you do well, yeah and I think it's really interesting I just really want to highlight something that you said a bit earlier you said um you, you knew in your head what you had to do and your heart eventually catched up. And I think in our, in our like, Christian culture, we very often are like, very feeling-based, very like, well, I feel like God has put this on my heart now, so I'll do that and whatever else can just wait by the side. But actually, diving into theology, diving into the reality of justice is saying, I'm putting aside any excuses and I know what I know and I can't, I can't ignore that anymore. So for people in this room, for people listening at home, if they want to go on a similar journey of really just tapping into actually what is God saying about justice and allowing that to wreck their lives, what advice would you have for them? I think we've got to come with honesty and humility to the Bible um, and sitting before God. And I think... I've got all the excuses in the world. I still have them. And I still would love to use them. Uh, and there are some days where I still do. Uh, but I think I've got to be honest with myself when I do that. And I've got to humble myself before God. Uh, and so, you know, we all know, you know, what Micah says, you know, to God, what does God require of us to act justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly before our God. You will only act justly and love mercy if you have figured out humility. And so I think we come in submission to scripture, which is challenging, and it will inconvenience, and it is a daily laying down of our lives. I think if you want to dive into theology more deeply, um, you know, yes, there's lots of courses you can do. Um, there are books you can read. Um, but I'd say, like, surround yourself with a community of people that you can discuss with. And we learn from one another. The Bible was never meant to be read on your own. And so, again, in this Western world, we have the kind of, uh, the, um, like, individual quiet time that we have before God is seen as that precious thing. But, and, and I'm all for, like, one-to-one -one with God and, you know, it talks about going and shutting the door and, you know, and that's where we pray. But this being the only time we study scripture, that's not when you, it's not actually biblical. You know, the Bible was shared in community. And I think we've got to think about that global community. So how am I hearing from my uh, brother and sisters in Latin America, in Africa, in the Middle East, where the culture of the Bible was written, um, how am I letting them inform me as I read scripture? And how am I bringing what I bring to them too? And so I think the voices of others are really important um, as you come and study scripture. If you don't want to study formally, there are tons of books out there. Uh, find some good accessible you know theological books but do not just read western white men and that is not because i dislike them some of my favorite theologians are western white men um, but we need to hear from others and be informed by others 
um, and hear the different perspectives. So if you only read one perspective, we will, we will be irrelevant to the world. The world is large and diverse and complex and contextual. And so if you are only reading from one vantage point, you will not get the fullness of God. The Imagio Dei, the image of God, rests in each of us. If you only hear from one perspective, you do not get the fullness of who God is. We just want to say a massive thank you to Joe. A massive thank you to everyone listening, whether you're in the room now, whether you're listening at home. If you are interested in this podcast, if you like what you heard today, you can subscribe. We'll be back every first Monday of the month with a new podcast. Thank you, everyone, again, once again. So let's say goodbye to our wonderful podcast listeners. 